0: Right. hey, good morning, everybody. Or again, I always say this, if you're watching us throughout the week, wherever you are, good evening, good afternoon, happy midnight, insomniacs. Uh, just glad, glad that you're here, glad to see faces in the building here. If you're out there and you're wondering if we're meeting in person here, yes, come on in, we've got room for you. Love to see your face here, but you guys in-house here are extra special. To me, I just love love seeing faces. Love seeing some faces we haven't seen in a while. Uh, it's exciting to me as things start to seemingly get back to some semblance of normal. So it's good. It's all good, and we've got a good word now. Uh, disclaimer here: I was able to sneak away for a vacation last week. So yes, Monday through Friday was wasn't super long. But man, it was it was amazing. Going out and just exploring God's country, it was great. But how many of you know when you come back from a vacation like that, it's almost worse trying to catch up and get everything done? And I'm at this place where studying for this message, I started obviously before we left, but finishing it up, and and God is still speaking to me. God is still showing me things through this, even... Even as I, I put the last period in my notes here, God is still speaking things to me, even on the way in this morning. So you're going to find out what happens along with me as we go through this and, and just see, see where the Lord leads this. So, um, but I'm excited. So let's get in. So we are, if you've missed any of these, we're in a series called Blameless, A Study in the Life of Job. Obviously, it's about the book of Job. If you've missed any of them, I think it's really important to guide you back to whatever digital platform you're looking at, whether it's Facebook or YouTube, go back and check out the archives. Check out that we're in message number four, so you don't have that far to go, even if you've missed all of them, but catch up on what's going on, because this is so important that we don't see the book of Job as one of, of defeat, one of just depression and downer, and Job's just getting beat up and what's going on here. It's important that we see this book as as an exciting thing. Really, even the trials that Job goes through, even the trials that Job goes through, as bad as they are, are an exciting thing that God is doing in Job's life. And that's kind of the lens I want you to look at this book through. And it might be different than maybe you've, you've seen it before, but the idea that God can take everything that comes our way. Not only can he, he promises to take every single thing that comes our way, the good and the bad, and use it to elevate us, use it to draw us closer to him. So if you're going through a trial right now, if you're in a season where everything just seems to be one bad thing after another, rejoice in that. Rejoice in that, because our response, our godly response to those trials, as we see in Job, is what allows us then to grow closer to him. And that's what we should all really want out of life. And so this is where we are. So let's get forward, get going. If you've missed any of them again, please go back and check them out. But last week, quick recap, last week we saw this scene in the throne room of heaven. We saw this scene where the devil is actually Satan the adversary is standing before God and he essentially issues a challenge. He issues two challenges, really. One against God. says, you have purchased Job's loyalty. Yeah, I see Job. Job's good. He's blameless and all that. But you bought that. You've put a hedge around him. You have given him so much. That's why he's loyal to you. And then obviously, against Job, questions his character even though even though he's laid out from the very beginning as as blameless that's established very firmly blameless but the devil still accuses him and says he will turn on you the second all this dries up in other words he's just going to be like everybody else so this is where we are these twofold accusations and then God gives Satan in a really hard thing for us to wrap our minds around God gives Satan permission to test Job. So the last word from last week, the very last scripture, is actually going to be our first scripture for today, just for a recap. Job chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. This is the devil's challenge. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. God has just given Satan, the accuser, permission to go after Job up to harming his personal body. We're going to find out later why that that is so, but let's do a quick recap here. Job has been extremely blessed by God. There's no question. That's all established in the early chapter. He's considered blameless by God, as close, really, to perfection. Remember, blameless and sinless aren't the same thing, but he's close to that as a human being can get. And then Satan has been given permission by God to test Job and to test Job's character and, more importantly, his loyalty to God. So that's where we were last week. We ended up now, the scene, if you will, shifts back to earth, so we're back on earth. Job is completely oblivious to this conversation. Job doesn't know anything about this. He doesn't know what's going on in heaven. He's just having his normal day. And so where we find ourselves here, beginning in Job chapter 1, verse 13, is where we are for this weekend. It's the first day of the week. Okay, So it's the very first day of the week. Job would have just gotten up early. As Scripture tells us earlier, Job 1.5, the first day of the week, this new cycle, he would have gotten up early to offer burnt offerings on behalf of his children. Remember, his children would cycle around through the week having dinner and these, these parties essentially at each one of their homes. And so we can look at that timing and we can infer that this is the first day of the week and what would have just happened, he would have gotten up in the morning, he would have, he would have offered these burnt offerings, called his children in, he would, have, he would have blessed them, and he would have sent them back out to their day. So, so far, this is a typical, a typical first day of the week for Job, but he's done everything right. He's prayed over his children. He has thanked the Lord. He has done all these things. And so he goes on with his day. Okay? Then, there's an urgent knock at the door. Okay? Scripture doesn't say that, but you picture this scene where he's just, he's, he's gone about his day, and there's a knock on the door. Would have had to have been a pretty urgent knock. Job chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. Read like this. Now... On the day when his sons and daughters were inking, eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, that's how we know it's the first day of this cycle. Traditionally, the oldest brother would have hosted first. It would have been a place of honor for the oldest. A messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Let's talk about that for just a second here. That's a thousand oxen, 500 donkeys, plus servants gone in just a moment. Gone in just a moment of time. Now, the Sabaeans here, who the Sabaeans were, the Sabaeans, it was a territory in kind of southwest Arabia, sort of to the, to the east of, of uh, where uh, Uz, the land of Uz, that they're in here. And a loss like this to marauders, these marauding tribes and, and gangs and bands of, of desert nomads was not really unheard of. It would happen. Now this is a grand scale. This is this is a lot. But this idea was not necessarily unheard of. The Sabaeans were also known, some translations will call them Sheba, as in or queen of Sheba, that we see things happening. Isaiah 45 calls them men of stature. So the Sabaeans were kind of like a like a, a warring, kind of an aggressive tribe. They're actually descendants of Noah's son, Shem, coming down that line. So, actually, I, have a, I think I have an image here of what the Sabaeans might have, what this image might have looked like. I don't know how well that translates online there. Um, but they're riding in on their horses. They're stealing uh, the oxen and the donkeys. Known, They were known as, as uh, horsemen. So, this stuff is going on. Now, whether that really looks like them or not, we don't know. But here's what's important. Take a look at this. The idea of a messenger. When it says a messenger came and said, and gave, him, and gave Job the news, and then said, I alone have escaped to tell you. It calls to mind this idea of, and we see this in in movies all the time, especially those about uh, medieval times and, and Vikings and things like this, where when there's a battle and, and one side completely decimates the other, they always leave one or two survivors. And the idea of the survivor is what? Go tell what happened. Because it really does no good to wipe out an army and do all these great things if nobody knows what happened. So they always leave one or two and say, hey, just go, go and tell them. And that is, that's a, a common thread. In fact, we see that in Scripture. We see that idea. Genesis 14, 13, the first half of it anyway, says, A man who had escaped came and reported this to Abram the Hebrew, Abraham. So this is a man escaping a battle. And that word escape, so stay with me here, that word escape translates as palit. It's a Hebrew word translates as polite and it means really escaped one or fugitive okay so it's it's that phrase that word is used throughout whenever uh, there's a battle and somebody escapes to tell of what happened okay simple concept we see that over and over again here's what's not so simple though here and only here in job we see that word translated now we see it in other places in other contexts but in this specific instance translates as malak. Now, who here knows how else the Hebrew word malak translates as? Translates as messenger. Messenger, specifically as in an angel, or a messenger sent by the Lord. So, I'm not saying that these are angels who come, but they are very, very clearly not simply a random escapee. They were sent by God messengers of the Lord to make sure that Job knew what was happening. Very interesting. Why would God need to make sure that Job knew what was happening? Because if this all happened out in the field, it might be days or weeks or months before he found out. Probably not months, but it could be quite some time before he found out what happened. We're going to see here, Job just takes one punch to the gut after another in quick succession. And it's clear that God has ordained the timing of this. Satan's doing it, but God has ordained the timing for maximum effect here. And, and I, I think Satan is, let me, let me rephrase all that. Satan is only doing this because God has given him permission. So everything that happens here, Satan is guiding. But God is playing a part in this. Because God wants there to be zero mistake of what's happening. And I think he does that in our lives sometimes, too. We're going to talk more about that idea here in just a minute. But the point of all this is that Satan and God, whichever one who actually ordained this timing here, made absolutely certain that Job knew. There's no question. Now, Job doesn't even have a chance to absorb this news, okay? All this is happening. He doesn't even have a chance to do that Job chapter 1, verse 16, while he was still speaking. Okay, so he, he hasn't, the first one hasn't even stopped talking yet. And another also came and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. It's that same thing. I alone have escaped to tell you. It's that same messenger. I alone. So that is now, that's 7,000 sheep and more servants gone. Now, again, as I said at the beginning, Job knows nothing of what's going on in heaven. He knows nothing about this this spiritual warfare battle that's going on raging around him. When he sees this fire from God, it would have been very easy to see the Sabaeans and just go, that happens. It's a it's a hazard of living next to a nation that's, that's marauding and warring. It happens from time to time. But this, in his mind, this had to be God. Fire falls from heaven, that's God punishing for some reason. Now he's in the middle of this. Now He's in the middle of grappling with what's going on here. And again, rapid succession, body blows, reeling from this development here. Now it gets worse. Job 1.17. Again, while he was still speaking. So one after another after another. Another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Quick side note where it says formed three bands, that tells us two things. One, it was an organized war party, and also their goal was to steal the herds. Because if they form in just one line and come on in, the camels and the herds would just separate all over. They came in in a coordinated attack to corral them. Okay, so not theologically important, but this is what's going on here. Took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and again, I alone have escaped to tell you three thousand camels and even more servants gone in the blink of an eye now these these Chaldeans were the ancient residents of Babylonia, Babylon. We see them from that area. Scripture tells us there's a they are a fierce and warlike people. now at this time, remember this is this is two thousand years before Christ. this is early, early, early. And the Chaldeans were just this fierce and warlike tribe. Now, as things moved forward, God used them and their nature to accomplish his mission. There were times when actually they were marginally allies of Israel. But Habakkuk actually describes them like this. Habakkuk 1, chapter 1, verses 6-7. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people who marched throughout the earth to seize dwelling places that are not theirs. They are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate with themselves. This is a description, and I think I've got, I actually think I have a quick image of that. Do you guys have that? That's, nope, the other one. That one. So there they are, coming in, fierce, warlike. They are big people, and this is nothing new. They're slaying the servants down here at the bottom. Again, I don't know how well these translate online. But this is what is happening. Now, how go back to that other picture, the other image that we have. There's Job sitting with his wife down here, and you can just see he's just sitting there. Going, What's happening next? You got these servants coming in, and they're like, "This has happened. They've stolen. They've slay, slain the servants. They've stole all of your livestock. This is what has happened." And they're just coming in one after the other, and you can almost hear Job muttering in this picture. I just picture him muttering, well, at least my children are okay. You can almost hear that. Okay, I've, I've lost my livestock. I've lost my camels, my, uh, my sheep, my donkeys. But at least I've still got my children. You can almost hear that. And then chapter 1, verses 18 19. While he was still speaking... Another also came and said, your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Seven sons, three daughters, and their spouses and Job's grandchildren, all gone. Now, two natural disasters and two what you could call crimes of man take away nearly everything he had in faster than it took me to teach it, faster than it took me to read it to you. One after another after another, bam, bam, bam. And we don't know for sure how long Job sat there. You can see him sitting on the bench. I don't know if it looked like that or not. But he sits And just stunned silence, just trying to wrap his mind around what's happening here. Can you even imagine? But when he does, when he finally opens his mouth, or when he finally reacts, that is, he responds in actions first, then words. I think this is a critical point in the story. So let's, let's take a look at this. This is the point. All this has happened. Job is sitting there. The witnesses, so who's witnessing? His wife is there. The four, obviously, uh, that escaped to tell him of this are there. Probably some servants, Job's household servants, somebody is there. So there's, there's an audience. It's a small audience, but there are people there who are watching. And they're watching this man, Job, just take one slam after another. Bad news, bad news, and it gets worse, and it gets worse. Tragedy has clearly struck him hard. And the question that God is watching for, Satan is watching for, and the witnesses are watching for, how is Job going to react? Because this is the moment. We can all react out of our flesh and then change our mind and say, wait, that's not what I'm supposed to do. And that is a victory in itself. But that initial reaction, that's what's flowing out of your heart. So that's what everybody is watching for here. Now, again, this is a sucker bet, so God knows how this is going to turn out before it even does. But it's a critical point in the bet that's going on here between Job and God, the challenge, that is. What we say, this is important for us to understand, what we say does not matter nearly as much as what we do, especially that initial reaction that initial fleshly reaction, maybe I've been hurt and I'm going to lash out. I've lost something and therefore I'm going to blame. What you do is so much more important than what you say. We have a quote, I actually have a quote from Mark Twain. Mark Twain said this, actions speak louder than words, but not nearly as often. So many times we try to cover up our transgressions in action by words. We try and explain our way out of it. I think that's what Mark Twain was getting at here. You can, you can pull that down. We try and explain our way out of a fleshly reaction when really if we'd react like Job that's more what God wants. That's where our hearts should be growing to. But I think really that's Mark Twain so that's just an earthly um, quote machine. That guy was great at quotes but I think Jesus said it better. Jesus chapter, in Matthew 5, verse 16, Jesus says this, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. In other words, all all of our praise and our words and our good works can be shown to be hypocritical in one moment. Either hypocritical or true in one moment, one single action. Again, we're at this point. If Job explodes into name calling and finger pointing, what's Satan going to do? I told you so, just like everybody else. And you can almost picture the smug look on Satan's face as he's like, wait for it. Here it comes. Wait for it, right? That's what I'd be doing. How would you respond? Let me ask you that. You out there, wherever you are, how would you respond? You've just lost virtually everything that you rely on for income. Okay? You've lost, you've lost all of your livestock. You've lost your ability to run caravans and the things that you did for wealth. You've lost all of that, and then you lose your children. All in one moment. How would you react? I'll tell you what I would do. Now, The very first time it came in and you saw this, my first question would be, where were the guards? Where were the guards? Where were the sentries? Where were those? How could they have snuck up and stolen all this without anybody even noticing? Did anybody even put up a fight? Bring me somebody who can explain what exactly went wrong here. That's what I would do. Now, when you see fire rain from heaven, it's pretty hard to point fingers and assign blame unless you're going to assign it to God. And then you see a wind come, and a wind knocks down a house. Again, that's hard to assign blame. But when you see human beings coming in, the Sabaeans, the Chaldeans, when you see them coming in, I'm going to want to point a finger and ask what went wrong. It's pretty much human nature. Job doesn't do that, though. This is so out of what my nature would be. Uh, You guys are probably much more like Job where you would respond appropriately. I would not. I would be asking some questions. Here's how Job responds. Job chapter 1, verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshiped. He didn't say a word. He stands up. He tears his robe. Okay, this would have been an outer tunic. So if you were more wealthy and more well-to-do, you had an outer tunic. Okay, so he would tear that off. It's just a, just a sign of, of grief, of extreme grief. Shaved his head, another sign of extreme grief. Later outlawed by Mosaic law to do that, but that wasn't in place at this time. He fell to the ground, and he worshiped. That's his response His response out of this immense grief that many of us could never even understand or wrap our minds around all at once, one after the other. He's not assigning blame. He's not asking questions. In fact, he never asks why. At this point, he never even asks why. He falls to the ground and he worships. That word worship is a Hebrew word, shakah. And shakah means to bow down in reverence. So in the midst of all this happening, the first impulse, the first instinct that he has is I'm going to bow down to my God in reverence. It's not to be angry. It's not to fight. And that reverence, that worship reverence can be expressed through prayer, through praise, through song, through dance, all ways that we can express our reverence for a sovereign God. But Job seems to have this understanding that it can only be God back then, that he had this understanding of how God's sovereignty worked. God has provided these things for me, and he has decided that it's time to remove them from me. And so all I can do is praise him, that he is in control, and that he has a higher purpose and understanding than I ever could. So I'm not going to question that understanding. I'm going to praise him that he's in my life and that he's in control. This is Job's response. Again, not one that many of us would have. When Job finally speaks, this has all been just actions, no words up until this point. But when he does finally speak, it's not... It's not a response of surrender. It's not a response of, oh, well, these things happen. It's of praise. Again, he shows us praise and worship, and then he speaks praise and worship. Job chapter 1, verse 21, he said, many of us have heard this in different contexts, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away blessed be the name of the lord his response to this is to bless the name of the lord that phrase right there is much bigger than it just appears on print the lord the creator of the heaven and the heavens and earth and everything that ever was and ever will be bless him in the middle of this trial job's got an understanding that i personally would would just love to have of how, God, how good God is. There's, a, there's a, um, a philosophy of life called Stoicism. And I've read Marcus Aurelius' book on Stoicism. I've, I've studied Stoicism a little bit. Essentially, the idea of Stoicism can be boiled down into this. Suck it up and move on. Whatever happens to you in life, Suck it up and move on. That's essentially it, okay? So you don't have to read Marcus Aurelius now. I just gave it all to you. I have this quote from Marcus Aurelius. Read this. This is from, this is from his book called Meditations. Now look carefully at this. If you are distressed by anything external, the pain is not due to the thing itself, but to your estimate of it. And this you have the power to revoke at any moment. Okay, so what he's saying is it's not the thing itself causing you pain. It's the fact that you've decided that's going to hurt you. And you have the power to revoke that at any moment. Now, I put this up here and I realize it's dangerous because even myself, I read this and I go, hey, that's not bad. That's not bad. Things only have the power to hurt me if I give them the power to hurt me. Here's the problem, though. The problem with this. The idea places the power of the mind to ignore pain above everything. Just ignore it. Don't let it it hurt you. Just ignore it. Now, on the surface, again, that's not a bad idea. But the danger here, it's a type of self-worship and a type of idolatry. It's actually called selfism. You can take that down. The idea... The idea that you within yourself have the power to change how all this moves, how all this affects you, is a kind of self-worship and we need to be careful. You read that and on the surface you go, yeah, I get it, That's not, that could be a motivational poster on my mirror, but here's a higher discipline, an even higher discipline than ignoring bad things that happen to you, ignoring the bad things of life, A higher discipline is to turn to God in our weakness. Turn to God in our weakness and ask him for power and strength to get through that. Not simply to ignore it, to recognize where the power to get through it comes from. Paul wrote about this. Paul wrote extensively about this idea of finding reasons to praise God in our weakness, reasons to be joyful when things happen to us. We see this all the time. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 through 10. I'll just read this one to you. This is Paul speaking. And he has said to me, this is the Lord speaking to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness, so the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weakness, with insults, with distress, with persecution, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That doesn't mean being weak makes you strong. It means when you are afflicted with these things, understanding that it's not just a matter of sucking it up and getting through it. It's a matter of saying, I can only do this by turning to the lord and his power in me that is so much a higher calling than just pretending like it's not happening which is what stoicism would have you do when things get rough do you question god's motives or do you worship him that's really what it comes down to do you question how could god allow this why would god allow this what went wrong what am i not seeing What's the bigger picture? Should I have gone to church more? What could I have done to stop this from happening to me? Or do you simply worship him? Because whether you see it or not or understand it or not, he is sovereign and he's in charge and he has promised this, that he loves you. I would rather trust in that. And then are your afflictions, when things happen to you, are they a distraction that pulls you away from God and into the fleshly world? Pulls you away from the things of God and into earthly remedies? Or are they a temptation to look elsewhere for strength? Inward. I think it's easier if we have an eternal perspective like Paul did. Paul had this ability to have an eternal perspective. And he wrote again, Second Corinthians chapter 12, verses 16 through 18. Therefore, we do not lose heart but through that but though the outer man is decaying yet our inner man is being renewed day by day for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison while we look not at the things which are seen but at things which are not seen for the things which are seen are temporal but the things which are not seen are eternal it's an eternal perspective Paul calls them light afflictions. I know many of you in here and many of you out there have things in your life that you're looking at right now and you go, oh, that's not, that's not a momentary light affliction. That's either a lifelong thing that I've been dealing with or it is something horrible that's blowing up in my life right now. I wouldn't call that a light affliction. But that's exactly what Paul is saying. All these things are momentary and light when we focus on the things that are eternal, these things grow dim. These things grow much less important in our life. Not that they're not happening, not that they're not painful, but they are much less what we rely on. If I don't solve this, then the rest of my life is going to be terrible. We can say, if I don't solve this, then fine, because I know that God loves me and he has a higher plan for me and a higher purpose for me, and that is eternity and how I respond today to the things I'm going through will affect me in eternity. Our salvation is secure in Jesus Christ. We want to take others with us. See, Job was able to see the bigger picture. Through all this, Job had this ability to see the bigger picture. The very last verse of this section, Job 1.22, through all of this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. I'll just leave you with this. Be like Job. Round one, I would call this section round one. We're gonna find next week where Satan turns up the heat just a little bit more. He didn't get the desired result here with Job, so he turns up the heat a little bit more. How much like our lives is that? Well, that didn't get him, so I'm gonna turn it up even more. Our ability to withstand those things is important that we keep, it is important that we keep an eternal perspective in order to do that. So again, round one goes to God. Satan will not give up that easily. Next week, those of you who want to jump ahead, look at Job chapter 2. We're going to study the first probably half of Job chapter 2, and we're going to find out how he responds when things really, really get tough. Worship team, you guys can go ahead and start moving up here. Um, I'm going to announce, uh, announce, I'm going to explain communion to you. If you're here in-house, you heard me say at the beginning that we were on vacation last week. One of the things on my to-do list that didn't get done was to buy more mini communion cups. Those of you at home who are using a donut in your coffee from this morning, you doesn't matter to you. Those of you who are in-house, though, we have back at the table where we keep the communion cups. We've got small, the small single serves, okay? So grab that and grab a wafer and then come back to your seat. If you want to take communion, you can go ahead and go do that now. We also have prayer team in the back. I think this is important. We're gonna find out as we go through the book of Job that prayer is so important. Remember, prayer is just speaking to God. And you can do that wherever you are. If you're at home right now, I want to urge you to pray about how this message needs to to affect your life because God's word does not return void. It's promised to us that it will have its effect. How is this word going to affect you? Is it going to change your perspective on the things that you're going through? That's my prayer for you. If you're in-house here, we have prayer team in the back. Look for the lanyard. They can pray with you on the crosses. Don't forget at the crosses, You can write a prayer on a card, pin it to the crosses, and we will pray over those throughout the week. But wherever you are, let's celebrate communion together. Let's celebrate the fact that Jesus Christ gave it all for us so that we can stand before God blameless because we have have somebody who's going to intercede on our behalf. We don't have to stand before God and listen to the accusations of the adversary, and we have nothing to protect us. We have the blood of Christ to protect us. And the blood of Christ was given freely for just that. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Take the wafer, the bread, whatever you have, and celebrate body of Christ broken? How do we celebrate something broken? How do we celebrate something that is clearly so painful? We can celebrate because that momentary time of affliction, as horrible as it was, that momentary time of affliction that Christ went through secured for us everlasting life. And the, the wine, the juice, whatever you have represents the blood of the new covenant. If you accept that and Christ is the Lord of your life, then take the blood. We can do this and celebrate this with thankfulness because we've seen the end. We know how it turns out. Job didn't have that. He didn't have the ability to see in the written word how the story ends. And yet he kept his eyes focused on God and celebrated God no matter what happened in his life. Church, that's where I want my heart to be. I hope that's where you are too. Thank you, guys.
1: There's a kind of thing that just breaks a man Break him down to his knees God, I've been broken more than a time for two. Oh yes, I have and Then he picked me up and showed me what it means to be mad Oh, it's one